Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Anna LaPay, with Claire Hope Cummings, Rebecca Spector, and Melissa Nelson, as they discuss the future of food, exploring the politics, ethics, and impacts of genetic engineering. My name is Kira Epstein. I'm the program coordinator for the new school at Commonweal, and I'm I'd like to welcome you again to our Friday morning webinar conversations that we have here at the new school. Uh, we also have Ken Adams, as always, behind the scene doing audio and video production. So thank you, Ken. Um, today we have a special presentation because it relates to an anniversary of a convening that happened at Commonweal just about 20 years ago. We've been planning this actually since last year, so it would have been 20 years, but now we've uh, sort of creeped into 21. But we really wanted to celebrate what happened in July of 1999. Um, for those of you who don't know, Commonweal is a nonprofit. Uh, we have about 40 programs under our umbrella. We're doing work in the areas of health and healing, education and the arts, and environment and justice. Um, over the years, we have hosted a number of interesting conferences that have resulted in a lot of different pioneering work in different fields. Um, but in July of 1999, a group of about 30 people gathered at Commonweal to talk about genetic engineering in our food system. So that's what this, uh, this event came out of, an, an honoring of that foresight and this is an amazing group of people that have gathered here. Uh, the result of that conference and those conversations was a document that was called the Pacific Declaration. I'm gonna put, um, I'm gonna put a link to the Pacific Declaration in our chat for those of you who are with us now. You can take a look at that at your leisure and it will also be included later for you if you wanna look at it. Um, Looking at the list of people that signed up and uh, that signed that declaration, you will see a group of people and organizations that went on to do amazing things. Um, people and organizations that worked in all different areas to advocate for food systems. Um, many of the concerns that they underscored have actually been realized, unfortunately. But we know that their discussions helped to bring focus and greater awareness and they guided work that was done around these issues for the past 20 years, so that's wonderful. There's a long way to go, obviously. There's still a lot of grave concerns about how genetic modifications have infiltrated our food and our lives. So very soon now, I will turn this over to Anna LaPay, who will facilitate the panel discussion and introduce our esteemed panelists. And I wanna say a few words about Anna. Uh, first, Anna is a national best-selling author, a well-known advocate for sustainability and food justice along the food chain, and an advisor to funders investing in food system transformation. Her work has been featured in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the International Herald Tribune, and Oprah Magazine, among other places. She was named one of Time Magazine's Eco Who's Who. Anna is also the founder or co-founder of three national organizations, including Real Food Media, who is co-presenting 
our event today. In addition to her work at Real Food Media, she directs the Food and Democracy Program at the Pantorea Foundation. Anna is here at Commonweal. Um, she's hosting this panel at the New School today because her father was at the conference in Bolinas in July of 1999, where the Pacific Declaration was drafted. Mark LePay was an educator, author, and nationally recognized toxicologist who founded the Center for Ethics and Toxics in Gualala. Mark helped to create and sign the Pacific Declaration. So that's Anna's connection to us here today. Thank you, Anna, for helping us to mark this anniversary and for bringing this to us and reminding us about this. Um, it was an important discussion and it carries on the work of your father and of so many people. So I'm going to now turn it over to Anna and the panel. Thank Great, you. thank you. Thank you so much, Kira. It really is an honor to be here. Uh, it is also a little bit of uh, Murphy's Law of Zoom webinars during a pandemic that there is construction outside of my office right now. So if you hear any banging, uh, I apologize and hopefully it won't last too long. Uh, I want to just really thank every single person who is joining us today. It's really uh, incredible to have you all here. I was looking at the list of attendees and recognizing many familiar faces, many of you have been working on these issues for years, some of you even decades, so welcome. And uh, it's really great to have you. As Kira said, my name is Anna LaPay, and I am thrilled to be in conversation today with three of my favorite women working for a planet in greater harmony with nature. I will introduce all three of them shortly and then dive into conversation with them after uh, a few opening remarks I wanna share. So I want to start us off in this conversation with a little bit of context about these intersections between the politics, ethics, and impacts of genetic engineering and this milestone of this 20th or 20th-ish anniversary of uh, the Pacific Declaration. Uh, a note on terms, today we are really specifically talking about genetic engineering and agriculture, referring to the technology used to transfer genes from one organism to another in a way that would never occur naturally, uh, to be either expressing certain genes or repressing the expression of genes. And, uh, and so while genetic engineering is a broad term uh, that covers lots of different uh, areas, we're focused on genetic engineering and agriculture today. We have come together, as Kira said, to really celebrate this milestone anniversary of this uh, declaration, the Pacific Declaration. Uh, as uh, you heard, it was signed by and written by uh, more than two dozen scientists, ethicists, and experts in agriculture and environmental protection. At the time that the declaration was written, so if you can go in your way back machine to 1999, uh, we were on the cusp of genetic engineering in crops, uh, uh, which was led then and still is today by agrochemical corporations. Um, these genetically modified organisms or GMOs were developed as new ways to chemically control pests and to link seeds to proprietary herbicides. Uh, most, if not all of them then, uh, were designed to either express an insecticide or resist an herbicide or do a combination of both uh, and were released into the food supply without any long-term environmental assessment or human or animal health studies. 
So when I reread the statement's message, to me, it really felt like a call to arms. Uh, it was really laying out uh, a bunch of questions. It was saying, look, we've developed frameworks within and across nations for protecting the environment. You know, think about the Endangered Species Act, for example. And as we begin to alter the genetic makeup of living beings, the authors of the Pacific Declaration were calling for urgent an urgent look at what new frameworks would be necessary to protect genetic integrity for future generations. And I want to read from the declaration. It stated, in recognition of the fundamental importance of our planet's natural genetic heritage and diversity, and in acknowledgement of the power of genetic engineering to transform this heritage, we believe the proponents and practitioners of genetic technologies must adhere to the principles of prudence, transparency, and accountability. The authors argued that the burden of proof should be on those promoting genetic engineering to show these technologies, quote, contribute to the general welfare of consumers, farmers, and society, and that they do so importantly without compromising the viability of traditional agricultural practices, including organic farming. So a few months after the declaration was published, uh, I found myself getting tear gassed in the streets of Seattle in demonstrations against the World Trade Organization. Uh, at the time I was a graduate student at Columbia and I was studying trade and globalization. And so it felt like a very appropriate extracurricular activity. But I mentioned this because the timing was no coincidence. For the massive demonstrations in November, 1999 against the new global trade regime were very much about the future of food and how genetic engineering would affect farmers and eaters around the world and raise many of the same issues that those signers of the Pacific Declaration had. In the streets of Seattle, I heard as much from Teamsters and environmentalists as I heard from Mexican farming advocates calling for protections of their corn in the face of gen American genetically engineered corn imports and from farmers concerned about seed and chemical company market consolidation and what this would mean for crop biodiversity and farmers' ability to save and share seeds. Very much, again, the concerns of the signers of the Pacific Declaration. Before introducing uh, Claire, Melissa, and Becky, I want to share uh, how personal this is for me. You heard uh, Kira talk about the connection between my dad and the Pacific Declaration. Uh, as she said, my father, Mark LePay, was one of the signatories. And uh, about five years after it was published, he passed away at the age of 62 from brain cancer. Uh, he left behind, of course, a, a grieving family. Um, he also left behind an unfinished manuscript. Uh, in the wake of his death, I tried to turn the rough ideas of that manuscript into what would have been his 15th book. I never succeeded. Um, but I really think that manuscript's central message and that of the Pacific Declaration uh, has, has stayed with me all these years, now more than 20 years. And to me, it really is that we should be asking ourselves the big questions about the implications of genetic engineering. Who decides? Who benefits? Who is harmed? And how do these decisions affect future generations? 20 years later, these questions feel just as pressing as they did then, and they are precisely some of the questions that we will be exploring today in our conversation. Um, we'll be looking at 
what's the history of these technologies? What have we learned from campaigns over the last two decades around them and where we're headed? And I couldn't be more happy to be having that conversation today with uh, Melissa Nelson, Rebecca Spector, and Claire Cummings. Let me introduce the three of them, for those of you who don't know them, a little bit of background in each, and then I'll open it up um, uh, with our first questions. So Melissa Nelson is a descendant of Chippewa Cree cranberry gatherers and buffalo hunters, French trappers and Norwegian farmers. She advocates for indigenous people's rights and sustainable lifeways in higher education, nonprofits and philanthropy. And she is passionate about indigenous food sovereignty. She's a long-term leader at the Cultural Conservancy where she co-manages two farms and produces and hosts the Native Seed Pod podcast. And she's the editor of two books, original instructions, and traditional ecological knowledge. Rebecca Spector is the West Coast Director at the Center for Food Safety, where she advocates for policy initiatives at the state and federal level and coordinates public outreach campaigns to promote healthy and sustainable food systems. She's been working in the environmental and agricultural sectors for more than 25 years and has led numerous campaigns in California and beyond, resulting in laws to restrict antibiotic use in livestock, provide protections for farmers, secure legalization of seed sharing, and much more. She is the associate editor of two books, Fatal Harvest, The Tragedy of Industrial Agriculture, and Your Right to Know, Genetic Engineering and the Secret Changes in Your Food. For 10 years, she was the co-owner of the first certified organic farm in Half Moon Bay, California. Claire Hope Cummings uh, is a lawyer, environmental journalist, and author of Uncertain Peril, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Seeds. Claire combines her work with indigenous groups over the last 40 years, including being a founder of the Cultural Conservancy, with her experience in food and farming. As a journalist, she has covered genetic engineering for 30 years in print, radio and television, and was at the 1999 meeting where the Pacific Declaration was written. So as you can tell, we are very lucky to have uh, these three incredible women with us today. And uh, I want to start with you, Claire. Um, I want to start with you. You know, I mentioned you were in the room there in 1999, and I'd love for you to just share with us what prompted your concerns and the concerns of the group that really sparked the work behind that declaration, and what were you hoping to achieve uh, with it? Oh, thanks, Anna. Thanks so much for bringing us all together. This is uh, this is a really special time to remember the work that we've done, and I think that um, I do remember the meeting pretty well. Our concerns were a lot of what has been mentioned already. As you said, the um, it was early on, there were just a handful of crops being genetically engineered that were being grown and those two basic traits and those that has changed enormously. There's been a lot more proliferation of this technology, but our concerns were genetic contamination, the environmental and health risks, uh, reaching consumers and farmers and the lack of transparency and accountability in the industry for what these things um, we're going to do. And I have to say that I think it was mentioned, but everything we predicted when we were discussing in the meeting, what our, what our fears were, has all come true. And uh, uh, the other, the, the, the good news on that is, is that um, 
uh, we've continued to do this work in a really remarkable way. Everybody, I was looking at the list of the people who were there, and most of us are still at this. And they've done such effective work. And I think, uh, I hope we will talk more about what we've done right in that larger context of social change as well. I came to this um, as a lawyer and as a journalist. I went on to write two books on that. One was an editor's and reporter's guide to genetic engineering to try to get our side being reported on instead of the way it was at the time, which was all industries, PR. And also at the time, Monsanto had gone to the White House at the t- um, a couple of years back when um, George Bush was vice president under Reagan, and they made a deal. And the deal was that there wouldn't be any new regulatory, no new laws or statutes to address this novel never seen before living organisms that were being distributed in the world. Um, And they would use the laws that were created to control chemistry and plants, um, you know, for completely different purposes. And the reason I bring that up is, is that is partly the basis of our greatest concerns. And it's also very much the way things are now that these, we don't have the regulations we need. Thus things are, as we mentioned, untested, there's no accountability, and um, we're all at risk, and we're all guinea pigs. And I think that was some of the language at the at the meeting. It's like, oh gosh, you know, how's this going to turn out? Um, and you know, at the time, I think that we were struggling too to express some of the wording. Of what do we call these things? The insecticidal plant. I mean, who would ever conceive that you could grow a plant that would have its own insecticide? So we were trying to figure out what the terminology would be and articulate our positions. And it's interesting reading the Pacific Declaration because um, we have new language that we use, like the precautionary principle, and we get catch-all phrase of biosafety. And, um, and, And consumer right to know definitely was part of the discussion then and now. But um but I think the language has been refined. But if you look at the declaration, you can see these principles and these concerns already expressed there. So, you know, a lot has changed. An awful lot has changed. The way we talk to each other, the Zoom, for instance, but also social media has changed the way we communicate about these things. So we've had to adapt how we talk about them. But what I think is the main point I want to make is is that those general principles that you talk about, like the question of who decides, you know, do we have a right to say, and this is so true with all technologies that are affecting us now, you know, we could go into that a little later because they're even more dangerous and more, I think, controlling than we were looking at at the time. But the fundamental value statements and the images and the narratives that we need to get out in order to have the right conversation about whether or not we have a voice in technology, those haven't changed. So um, so uh, the principles of respect for life, for social and environmental justice, and for accountability in technology, we're still working on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, Claire, as you're talking about how then you were grappling with the words, the language, the lexicon of this new technology, at the same time you were faced with uh, uh, companies, you mentioned Monsanto and other agrochemical companies, that were spending millions of dollars on their own public relations campaigns to figure out what were they going to call it, what was the language they were, go- they were going to use, and what was the narrative, you know, sort of wrapping up those um, those 
those, those words together in a narrative. What was the narrative that they were going to put forward? And Melissa, I want to come to you next because as we were talking about this conversation, we talked about that importance of uh, looking at the power of language and how language then gets used to create narratives. And as I was looking at this at this history, I was go- I went back to that Time magazine cover from July 2000. So one year after the Pacific Declaration was written, it was a Time magazine cover story about one of the 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 unproven promises of the biotech industry, which was rice that would be genetically engineered to uh, include vitamin A. And the headline read, this rice could save a million kids a year, but protesters believe such genetically modified foods are bad for us and our planet. Here's why. And that, that cover stayed with me all these years too. And, and it reminded me of kind of that, that work around narrative that's so important and again, who controls, not just who controls our seed supply and chemicals, but who controls the narrative around them. And so Melissa, I'd wonder if you could kind of take us in a little bit deeper into that part of the conversation about language and narrative. Thank you so much, Anna and Claire. Yes, um, as indigenous peoples, we say, words create the world, stories create the world, right? Um, All world religions, you go back and the beginning was the word. So absolutely, he or she who controls the narrative manipulates the public opinion in such extreme ways. And um, I want to model, you know, using language and the power of words in this context by honoring the first peoples of this land where I live and work, where I think most of us reside on here, and that's uh, the coastal Miwok people and the Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria. That simple thing like a land acknowledgement, um, it, it, it takes away the erasure that has been done to Indigenous people and the erasure that is done to the grassroots food activists and the narratives of the people living these food systems, not the biochemical industry that is trying to tell us what's good for us. And so in this era of fake news and you know, arbitrary reality. It's so important that we create spaces and access for the stories that have been erased and have been invisible. And I think that's really my main point about how we are manipulated by uh, the corporate elites. I, I think of that great Stauber book, you know, toxic sludge is good for you, right? And how you you hear a lie long enough and you can believe it. And I think, you know, the way we brought in slow food versus fast food. Just that has really increased our uh, conversation and deepened our conversation about our relationship with narrative and with uh, language and with the future of food. Thanks, Melissa. So I want to turn to you next, Becky, and and kind of carrying on this this storyline of this narrative. Uh, Looking back over this arc of of 20 years, uh, what uh, what do we know now about the impacts of this technology? Again, not the narrative that's being spun to us, but the actual real-world impacts for uh, uh, for ecosystems, for farmers, uh, for farming communities. I wonder if you could kind of highlight some of those key impacts that you've seen from your vantage point and that you're hearing from communities that you work with. Yeah, and, and just for my personal context, uh, in 1999, I was working at Mothers and Others for Livable Planet, which is one of the organizations that worked on the de- declaration. And I did work with your father, which was a huge honor, and he was incredibly inspiring. And uh, Mothers and Others was closing up, and so I was looking for another job. And I was thinking about working at Center for Food Safety, which 
Uh, so this was 2000, and at the time was one of the only organizations working on genetic engineering. And I went to uh, one of the leaders in the organic movement who I really respected and told him I was thinking about making this change. And he said, genetic engineering is a fad. Um, it's not going to be with us long. It's going to pass. And um, unfortunately, that, that was not true. But I do think one thing that GMOs really did was activate a lot of people um, who care about food and the environment and really help start this good food movement that so many people are a part of now. And one of the first things that happened was when the biotech industry tried to get GMOs allowed in the uh, national organic law, which was passed in 2000. So hundreds of thousands of people came around and commented to USDA and said, we do not want GMOs in organic. And at the time, that was by far the largest number of people that have ever commented on a federal agency. And I really think GMOs helped propel um, this issue. And like you said, Anna, unfortunately, the technology and, and Claire has just been completely full of, of false promises, empty promises. So like you said, there's no GMO race to feed the world despite billions of dollars of investment in this technology. No products that are climate resistant, no uh, benefits to consumers, only risk. And the big bait and switch that these companies did was at the end of the day, what we have are genetically engineered crops that do one thing, and that is they're resistant to pesticides that farmers can spray more pesticides on the plant to kill the weeds without killing the plant. That is what by far the majority of these crops are designed for. And that's where we're seeing most of the risk with these crops. We're seeing risks to human health. The pesticides that are used on these crops, glyphosate, dicamba, 2,4-D, which is one of the components of Agent Orange, these are incredibly toxic pesticides. Everybody knows now we're seeing um, case after case in court of people that have been um, sickened by glyphosate and courts have awarded millions of dollars to these people and um, the product is still on the market. So of course we're seeing the human health effects, the environmental effects of these pesticides that are used on these crops on monarch butterflies, on endangered species, on amphibians, uh, the damage is, is huge and well, well proven. And then we're seeing huge impacts on farmers. Um, dicamba, so one of the pesticides that is used on GMO crops, has been shown to uh, can drift for miles and drift onto neighboring farmers' land. So we are seeing farmers pitted against farmers um, because they're losing their crops. There was even a murder in Arkansas over this issue. Um, we did have a huge court victory, which uh, actually resulted in taking Dicamba off of the market, uh, which I'll talk a little about later. But um, these are really awful impacts on farmers, uh, financial liability of farmers, and then also impacts on native crops like native corn. So GMO crops, because of their, um, especially if it's corn and open pollinated, we're seeing contamination of um, native crops because of genetic engineering. And then never mind GMO salmon, which we're also fighting in court and I'll talk about later. Um, if these GMO salmon escaped into the wild, the impact would be the destruction of native salmon. Native salmon. So these are just some of the impacts. And I know some of the people on this call uh, have been, you know, our scientists that have been working on this issue for decades and they would have a lot more to say, but those are just some of the main impacts that we're seeing. 
Thanks, Becky. Well, I want to I want to shift us into now thinking about what's that arc of of responses that we've seen again from many of the people who signed on to that original Pacific Declaration, from many others. And so, if we can maybe just stay with you, Becky, and have you you mentioned a couple of the campaigns that you're um, that you, you are working on now, but that you have worked on. And I think maybe if you want to lift up some of the the campaigns, some of the strategies that you saw. Uh, through your own work that have have really made a difference. I think one of the things that we we often struggle to remember when we look at the arc of social change is that when we successfully prevent something from happening, <laughs> it's hard to 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 really make that visible that this thing that didn't happen was actually a win. And so, if you want to talk about some of those uh, campaigns and some of the strategies you've used in them, yeah, thank you for acknowledging that because. As someone that's worked on this issue for 20 years, it's sometimes it can be hard to see the progress, but we've made so much progress. I think we are winning, and we're winning because the technology is flawed, as Claire said. Um, so, like I said, you know, one of the first ways we activated people was through uh, the organic standards and getting GMOs out of organic. Some of the other victories we had were a combination of legal pressure, consumer pressure, and pressure from farmers. So we, and when I say we, I mean collectively, you know, Center for Food Safety worked on these issues, but many, many groups, farmers, people worked on them. Uh, stopping GMO rice was absolutely huge. It was a big campaign that we worked on here in California, especially on the pharmaceutical rice, which could have devastated the rice industry. It took a long time, but we were able to get that stopped. GMO wheat, and that was really from the wheat farmers, but also consumer pressure to say, we do not want this wheat. We are just, uh, you know, we're exporting to markets that don't want GMOs. So those are huge successes. Imagine if rice and wheat were genetically modified right now. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Anna LaPay, Claire Cummings, Rebecca Spector, and Melissa Nelson. Uh, so I think those were huge collective victories that we have to remember. Also, the fact that we only have a few GMO crops. Granted, they are major crops, and that is a huge problem, um, but we don't have commercialized uh, genetically engineered tomatoes or potatoes. Um, After 25, 35 years of research, we only have one GMO animal that's been approved, GMO salmon. They've invested billions of dollars in trying to genetically engineer animals for food, and they have one that... I hope we'll be able to overturn in court. The other thing we've learned is Center for Food Safety, we've been in court against Monsanto for years and we've won many of these cases. So our small team of attorneys are up against these major corporate attorneys and it has been one of the most powerful moments of my life to watch our team get up there and fight Monsanto. And again, it's because we're right. We have the law on our side. One of the issues is that mostly our litigation is suing federal agencies who are not properly looking at environmental reviews of these crops or looking at the impacts of these crops or pesticides on endangered species. And the reason the agencies aren't doing those reviews is because they know they're going to find the information that these are having impacts. So that's really how a lot of the ways we've been able to win these cases is by um, challenging the agencies to show that they're not doing the improper environmental impacts. And part of the result of our lawsuits is that we are changing case law so that um, these agencies do need to do these environmental reviews 
In our dicamba case, which we just won, which again, which was against EPA overturning the approval of dicamba um, and the genetically engineered crops that it's used on, um, one of the outcomes of that case was that um, the agencies have to look at field studies. So not, it used to be that they only had to look at the studies that were provided by the corporations. Now they have to look at other studies that are in the field. And we had a lot of studies about the impacts of dicamba on farmers and those farmers having economic impacts from these crops. Um, so a lot of what we learned is we need to legally target the, the pesticides that are being used on these crops because we have so much evidence to show the harm of these pesticides. And the other thing is labeling. And we really know, I mean, we've been working on labeling for 20 years, uh, but we do know that good, strong GMO labeling does result in people not buying the products. So currently, uh, Center for Food Safety filed a lawsuit against USDA challenging the GMO labeling regulations. And we have a very, very strong case on a number of grounds. And we really feel that if we can strengthen that, those regulations, that that could really be the end of uh, genetic engineering in this country. Thanks, Becky. Um, yeah, I was I was interviewing a signatory of the Pacific Declaration and asking them to kind of share some of their reflections on uh, where we are today from where we were 20 years ago. And they were reminding me that in 1999, you know, there was a an industry industry was interested in genetically engineering every single item of produce in our supermarket, every every product you would go shopping for. And, and as you said, Becky, it's been very much focused on just a handful of commodities, again, major commodities, but just a handful of commodities. And when you look back on the history of, of genetic engineering, I was remembering the very first genetically engineered product was that flavor saver tomato, F-L-A-V-R-S-A-V-R. And um, it was only on the market for a couple of years before they took it off the market. Um, so, so yes, it, it uh, there has been, and certainly the campaigns you mentioned, been examples of of, of pushback from again farmers and community advocates. Uh, Claire, I'm wondering if you would want to jump in here to you know, again share your reflections on um, these campaigns over the past 20 years and something you said when we were talking about this conversation uh, that I wanted to, to raise again was that your your focus on this issue has also come from your interest in understanding more broadly, what are the systems of control around food and farming uh, uh, and how that impacts all of us? And I wonder if you want to pick up on anything Becky was talking about or, or that thread around that, that question of control. Yeah, thanks, Anna. Both, actually. Um, I'll get to the control issue because for me, that does go to the heart of what's going on here. But I loved listening to what Becky was saying and, of course, Melissa um, <laughs> we've been together on these things for so many years, and I'm reminded that uh, we live in a salmon nation, that this is a salmon bioregion, if you will, and that um, the fact that they're going extinct has so many ramifications for how we live and what we need to be doing about this larger issues, and not to be so I think sometimes caught up in what industry would like from us. One of the things I've learned as a journalist covering this for so long is Monsanto would like nothing more than for us to get into a debate with them about risks and benefits and forget these larger ecological and value ethical systems, the morality of, of trying to do something as abhorrent as um, genetically engineered salmon. And, and when she was talking about rice, in California, I had done a piece for World Watch on that, and 
the rice, the pharmaceutical rice that Becky referred to had human genes in it, and it was being planted openly under the Pacific Flyway so that all that those wonderful bird life and wildlife were coming in and feasting on us. It's, you know, it's, it's, if you really get into kind of what's going on, it can be very alarming. And I hope it will make people realize that this isn't over and we really do need to get busy. Um, and, and the, and the success that Becky was talking about was, um, was in rice in particular in California, um, was done because they would work directly with the farmers. And I think, you know, we do a lot of campaigns for these larger public education and consumer right to know and labeling. And, and we banned, you know, here in Moran, you know, the growth of seeds. So we've done great work, nothing, nothing that isn't good about it. But um, this direct work, I had just come back before the meeting at Commonweal, I had just come back from living in Vietnam. And I'd seen how pesticides were affecting the women who were still working in the fields, the machinery hadn't taken over quite yet. And um, I thought, well, how am I going to address this? I was working with the international pesticide groups there too. So I just started an organic farm, I hired a water buffalo and cleared some ground and started growing food without the pesticides and working with those women. And what those women taught me was is that women feed the world. And when I was reading recently, the New York Times was talking about how COVID is affecting hunger in the world. And it said too, that we have to support the women and women's empowerment. And I know this is true with, with indigenous farming too. So the women are the seed savers. Um, so I just wanted to pitch for the direct work we do, as well as all the campaigns that we do. And then I'll make a quick comment on that. Do I have time to make a quick comment on my favorite topic of control? Sure. Yeah, yeah. go for it. <laughs> well, you know, what, 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 um, when I was researching my book, I wanted to go and find out how all this came about. And believe me, it was not some discovery that happened with scientists somewhere. It came about... If you look at it, threads of eugenics and capitalism and the social sciences, and the idea is you can go and find the smallest little piece of life, you can manipulate it and control it, and then use that for social control. So it's all laid out in many historians, one of which did a really good job, and they called it the molecular vision of life. So pretending that DNA is actually the essence of life, which it's not was part of what gave them the idea that they could do this. But it's based on a lot of faulty, it's based on faulty science. It's based on ridiculous ideas about biology. And, um, and also, you know, so, so since it's so faulty, they had to put together this gloss of usefulness. And that's sort of what we're talking about with the GMO rice. Let's come up with something that might look like it would feed people and these lies. And it, I think it was our first kind of a introduction to the truthiness situation that we're now living in as a, as our lives where, you know, these money can lie and it's, there's just not a lot of accountability in the legal system. And I guess as a lawyer, this idea that, um, that these big agricultural corporations, agrochemical corporations are feeding the world is the biggest lie you know, Andy Kimbrell and the Center for Food Safety and people put together have done a lot of good work on trying to bust those myths. Um, but I think that the way we're really going to bust the myths is how we live and how we work together and going back to some of those basic values, which I know Melissa will talk so well about. So I'll stop here. 
Yeah, that's great, Claire. And I want to bring you in, yeah, uh, Melissa, uh, as Claire was talking about this molecular view of life, you know, I was thinking about conversations we've had about what I see as almost the like absolute counter <laughs> to that in uh, an indigenous view of nature and understanding of systems and seeing uh, uh, seeing the world through uh, uh, that that view of, of, of nature working as part of a system. And I wonder if you could dig into that a bit more and and connect that to one of the other themes over these last two decades has been the emergence of uh, indigenous leaders really emphasizing the rights of nature and how that work has been so powerful. And again, this really powerful counterpoint to the commercialization of nature, nature to the capture of nature and control of nature with genetic engineering. Absolutely. Thank you. So many thoughts and stories running through my mind. And I remember when I first met uh, Clara Cummings, gosh, 28 years ago, she had just been working on a project called the commodification of the sacred mm -hmm. and really alerting indigenous leaders early on to the threats of genetic engineering. And just that phrase, the commodification of the sacred, it's so powerful in terms of the language of understanding this worldview that breaks everything up, that reductionistic worldview that Claire was talking about with DNA, species, genes, uh, quarks, subatomic particles, human cells. You know, we are so fixated in the English language on things and not processes. Most indigenous languages are verb-based and based on flows and processes and, and ecosystems that are always dynamic and changing and fluid. And I think we really have to decolonize our minds from this idea of reductionism and that we can manipulate things so easily. So that's the control issue. Um, and the, the rights of nature is such an exciting movement that has really taken hold with indigenous peoples and everybody, not just indigenous peoples, are really seeing it's a way to transform our legal systems to incorporate more what native people we call natural law, the laws of Mother Earth and of the universe that humans cannot manipulate. We are at the mercy of the laws of Mother Nature, which climate change is really showing us right now how little control we have over some of these processes and how we've made grave mistakes in our relationship with the natural world. So the rights of nature, you know, started, uh, I mean, you could say it started decades ago by all kinds of different movements, but um, Ecuador and Bolivia, you know, put it in their constitution. What does it mean, the rights of Mother Nature, the rights of Mother Earth? More locally here in um, North America, many tribes, the Ponca with seeds, uh, my own Anishinaabe or, or Chippewa or Ojibwe tribe, the White Earth Band, our cousins, um, they did the rights of nature, put it in their law for wild rice or sacred wild rice, Monomen. So speaking of rice, you know, this is our native rice that is sacred to us. You cannot genetically modify our relative. And just getting back to the power of language again, you know, most scientists talk about these things as natural resources. And um, Chief Warren Lyons, Winona LaDuke, and many others have challenged us to change the word resources to relatives, natural relatives, right? If we just made that change when we talk about a resource that is extractable, commodifiable, controllable to a relative that you have to be 
humble with, courteous with, kind with, develop a reciprocal relationship with. And that's why the rights of nature is catching hold because it's transforming humans' relationship to nature again to be one of guardians and stewards to speak for this river, right? And to know the river has intrinsic rights, intrinsic values. You know, even Arna Ness, the founder or the coiner of the deep ecology movement, you know, why that movement took hold in the 60s and 70s, he acknowledged nature has intrinsic rights of its own. And humans' role is to be responsible and to take care and honor those, those rights. And indigenous peoples, of course, have been saying this for millennia. No one has been really listening until now. Right until now, because of the huge crises we face, it's you know the global pandemics on multiple levels, and um, so the rights of nature is being done at tribal levels. It's being done at county levels. It's being done at uh, state levels. Um, citizen scientists with Lake Erie, uh, and then the whole idea of the rights of Mother Earth. Over 130 countries signed on to that. Now. Now it's what does it mean? How do we implement it, right, at local, regional, and national levels? Um, I could carry on, but I know we have a lot to share. Um, I also want to mention one little story I kept thinking about with women. Carlo Petrini, the great, you know, charismatic, dynamic founder of the slow food movement, uh, he tells a story, humanity is racing towards a precipice of no return, of extinction. And all of humanity is racing towards this precipice and running, you know, with this idea of progress. And um, there's going to be a few people, he, he claims he's one of them as a humble Italian farmer, that are going to turn around as they're just about to go over this edge and they're going to turn around and who are they going to see? They're going to see women, indigenous peoples and farmers who are going to be holding back, holding their seeds, taking care of the earth and being responsible to each other. And I just think that's a perfect story for this conversation. Miigwech. Thanks, Melissa. I love I love that image, uh, and I love that that phrase: natural relatives versus natural resources. It's really beautiful. Uh, I want to I want to shift us to kind of now turning our eyes forward a bit, looking forward into the future. I want to remind all of you that you're welcome to stay on for the next uh, part of the program. Uh, the last half hour we'll have together uh, for to to get into any questions you have and really open this up to conversation with all of you. So I hope all of you can stay on for that. And the last uh, bit of time we have uh, is this part of the conversation. Again, I want to turn us to kind of where are we going from here? And um, and I want to, I'll turn it to you, Claire, to kind of take us into this conversation about where we're talking about this history of the, the Pacific Declaration and conversations about genetic engineering. It's really been focused on what some of us might think of as like GMOs 1.0 of, of some of these genetically engineered crops, uh, corn and soy, for instance, that have been uh, engineered to either express insecticides or resist herbicides, but that we are very much well on our way to a new set of threats uh, that uh, we are seeing a whole range of different genetic engineering technologies. And I wondered if you could take us into that part of the conversation. What are some of those new threats? How are they similar or different? Uh, and uh, what are some of the concerns that they raise for you? 
why do I always get to be the one that raises all the bad news? <laughs> I worked at KPFA for so many years. I think people realize this. That's the bad news station. I don't know. Um, I, I really thank you, Anna. And um, I will get to that. But I want to just also mention listening to Melissa, uh, this idea of rights for nature. One of my concerns about it, and this comes in the answer comes from Indigenous people, is as a lawyer, people like property rights and rights of this and rights of that. And I think we need to make sure that we're also talking about responsibilities. So a lot of the Native people who are talking about the rights of nature also say, what are our responsibilities? And that would we have to shift the idea of rights as a privilege. Um, so I'll leave it at that because again, the languaging around this is going to matter. Um, and I also really so so yes, uh, where we're headed is terrible because it's a natural trajectory for this amount of control, this molecular vision of life. So we have gene drives. Um, I'll mention that people probably have heard the word CRISPR. CRISPR is basically just a, a genetic engineering tool, and it's pretty precise in the way it targets what it's manipulating. However, that precision is deceptive because the unintended consequences, and there are studies now that show that those off-target effects and some of the things that we were concerned about in Commonweal are still going on even with these more precise tools. So let's not be fooled with that word precision when genetic engineers use it. And, you know, I learned about this a little bit from an engineer who told me in reforming is what you said, Anna, about asking the right questions. She said, we're not asking that the engineers, genetic engineers don't ask the right question. The only question, this is Angela, Angelica Hilbrick, uh, a German scientist who helped, who helped develop recombinant BT. So she has a lot to say about this. And she said that when, when the engineers are working on this, they're saying, does it work? That's the only question they ask. And she said, we need to learn to have all the better questions that we need, such as what else does it do and who counts and the kinds of questions that you mentioned. So, um, so the importance of that comes into some of these new technologies. And I want to just mention gene drives. A gene drive is a, is a very powerful tool. It's never been seen before in the world. And it can be used to turn off reproductive cycles, for instance. So you can have a gene drive mouse and that mouse can only produce male offspring. It won't, it's called the daughterless mouse. Now, as a group of women, we might shiver at the fact that the world might turn into a daughterless world or there'll be daughterless anything. And um, I do, I feel very strongly about this. There are now daughterless fish, daughterless mosquitoes, daughterless mice. And there being again, this moral gloss, the Gates Foundation and all, they wanna distribute these um, um, gene drive mosquitoes in Africa purportedly to address malaria without again, looking at any of the tremendous possible consequences of taking such a powerful tool and putting it into biological systems and, and life on earth would be changed completely by that with all these unintended consequences that we've been talking about. Um, so I think that, I think that uh, you know, we have to be paying very close attention to, to what's going on. Um, 
I haven't been working as much in this field um, as I used to, but I wanted to contact a friend, a colleague who is, and I called Jim Thomas at the ETC group in Canada. And if anybody wants to know anything about all the stuff we're talking about, please go to the link that I added there to the ECT group because ETC group, they really are on all of this and they really help us understand what's being deployed where and what the what would you need to do about it. But Jim was describing the digitization of agriculture in a way that I was astounded at. And um, he was talking about this data colossus where every part of it, and again, it's a reflection of the worldview that we can take things down to their smallest parts and then use it to control larger systems and have social control. So it's pretty scary, but I think that if we can listen to the indigenous people and the original instructions and the women of the world who actually are feeding the world and doing the work, that we'll get some ideas. And it's always been the way I get re-inspired and it lift me up when I get depressed about all the things that we're that they're going on. Um, you know, I just feel like um, I want to repeat something, not repeat, but add to something that Melissa was saying about changing the stories, because in my in the epilogue of my book, I talk about part of the problem is this the um, origin myths that we tell ourselves, and so the Genesis story, for instance, has been misapplied in our culture in a way to encourage our dominance. And um, as Melissa well knows, um, the uh, Oneida sky falling woman story reflects some of what she was saying when, when, in the creation of the earth of the alliance between all living things and that sky falling women arrives holding, you know, the seeds that we needed. And if we can, if we can get back to the humanity of and the and the living systems, um, you know, and these other values of life on Earth. For me, beauty, wonder, you know, looking at, at just over this camera, that little green light I'm looking at is a whole oak tree full of birds that have been my real audience out there all this time. And you know, it's just it, we need we need to stay in tune with that and with each other. And I think staying in tune with that and each other is going to be our major, basic challenge going forward. So. That's it for me. Thanks, Claire. Uh, I loved all your reflections. And as you were talking, I, I was thinking about that line from Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. Some of you may rem- remember, right, where he's they're talking about genetically engineering, basically, these crazy dinosaurs. And uh, he, uh, he says to one of the scientists, he says, yeah, yeah, but you scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not you could do that, you didn't stop to ask whether you should. But I think that's, you know, that, that I think about that line all the time. Um, and, and thank you for the shout out to ETC Group. I have learned so much uh, from, from them uh, and recommend everybody um, to, to look at their resources. Uh, in the last few minutes, I, I want to continue this thread of a conversation looking forward and Becky bring you in to talk about what you're seeing on the horizon and how you're seeing really how the industry has has had to been forced to because of the response from farmers and consumers and advocates has has been forced to kind of shift where you're seeing those shifts happening uh, what are some of the new narratives you're seeing uh, and um, and it, or if there was anything Claire said that that got your mind thinking about other themes you wanted to bring up yeah I, there's you know a lot going on uh, in addition to what Claire said, you know, one thing obviously is um, 
the merger of Bayer with Monsanto and the fact that since that merger, uh, the Bayer stock price has gone down 60%, uh, which is huge. And Bayer has had to take on uh, glyphosate and all the liabilities of that pesticide and had to pay out all of the court cases we were talking about earlier. So I think that's that's a really interesting um, trajectory that's happening um, to these companies. The other thing that somebody in the chat mentioned, which is hugely important and devastating, is that these chemical corporations are, um, they own 60% of the world's commercial seed supply right now. And that is frightening. Um, it's happened pretty quietly, not quite anymore, but pretty quietly over the past 25 years. And that's something that I agree, we all need to be very concerned about and working toward. And I know a lot of organizations are working toward that. At Center for Food Safety, we created a free peer-to-peer uh, -peer seed sharing website called the Global Seed Network. And uh, it's just one way to for people to exchange seed um, on a small scale level. And the other thing, obviously, we have been working on is trying to make sure that it's legal to share seed because in California, it wasn't legal to share seed on a small scale. Uh, we were able to pass some legislation to get around that. Um, so that's another really concerning thing that we're seeing in the industry. And the other thing is, you know, new ways uh, that these technologies are being promoted. And I think one of the most um, disturbing ways is through products such as the Impossible Burger. So many people may know that the Impossible Burger uh, is a plant-based burger and it appears to bleed. And uh, what makes it appear to bleed is a genetically modified compound called protein called heme um, that has not gone through any testing. Uh, Center for Food Safety is in litigation against FDA about um, that additive. We would like it to be considered a food additive and go through the food additive process. But as it is now, there's no required testing uh, for that product and it's never been consumed by people before. And in addition to that, the Impossible Burger is also made with GMO soy. So we have all the problems with the pesticides that are used on GMO soy. And the worst part about the Impossible Burger, and as someone that lives in the Bay Area, is that Silicon Valley has invested uh, hundreds of millions of dollars into this company to uh, invent and promote this product. And the company really, I think, unfortunately, is um, the poster child for the next phase of GMOs in our food supply. And I think it's uh, very upsetting and disturbing. I think we all know that there are uh, plenty of great plant-based burgers that can may be made without GMOs. You just need a lot of good marketing, right? And that's really what's going on here and what's so disturbing to me. And I think what we really need is what if all those hundreds of millions of dollars went into promoting organic and agroecological farming? Um, or marketing for, even marketing for organic. You know, one of the problems we have is that now that the majority of our organic food companies are owned by big conglomerates like Kellogg's or Kraft, organic is only a very small percentage of those corporations' food lines. So they're not going to put hundreds of millions of dollars into advertising the health benefits of organic or the environmental benefits of organic. And that's a huge problem. So it's not only the consolidation of our seed supply, but also our food supply and the consolidation of the organic industry. But if we somehow could get the kind of money and investment that is being put into products like the Impossible Burger and put it into 
uh, organic and regenerative food and farming, then you know, I think that would be uh, an amazing way to move forward because we know that organic and regenerative farming is better for health. We know it's better for the environment and we know that it can feed the world. And we just need the money and resources to put behind it. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Anna LaPay, Claire Cummings, Rebecca Spector, and Melissa Nelson. Thanks, Becky. And as you were talking about the Impossible Burger, I was thinking about all of the, the points you all have raised in this conversation and you've been working on for so many years around consumers' right to know. Uh, I was in the, um, this is before we all stopped flying, but I was in the airport in New York City uh, earlier this year and I saw signage for the Impossible Burger at one of the, uh, one of the restaurants inside the terminal and it had some kind of language around how you know how healthy and delicious this was and there was nothing on it that had anything about the ingredients let alone that there was any genetically engineered ingredient in it uh, so i think that you know it ties into how do we how how do we demand that we actually all have a right to know what it is we're eating and putting into our bodies uh, Melissa, I wanted to turn to you for the last uh, last word here uh, and uh, as we were talking about this conversation again in preparation for this time with all of you, we were noting that we're having this conversation in the context of incredible wildfires across uh, our state here in California and uh, Oregon, Washington, and of course the crisis of this pandemic, crisis of social upheaval. I'm wondering if you can. Uh, I know this is a big question, but you know, connect what uh, what these crises can can teach us and to and ground us in an appreciation of indigenous wisdom uh, and uh, and what um, in a way kind of what in such a time of such crisis where are those those strands of hope um, that we can can hold on to uh, as we uh, as we face again this kind of onslaught of, of so many crises at once mm, thank you well. Awesome, massive, wonderful question. I think um, Mother Earth is waking us up, shaking us with these storms and superstorms and fires and climate change, and really, literally trying to wake us up. I mean, this has been in Native American prophecy um, that we will reach this time of a crossroads, and we need to look back to all of our original instructions, right? Not just Indigenous original instructions but pre-conquest, pre-colonial original instructions that were based on a kin-centric relationship with nature. Wonderful term coined by Enrique Samón and Dennis Martinez that we are not anthropocentric or just biocentric, which often means humans are out of the equation, but we are kin-centric. Again, it's based on a worldview that we're all relatives. We're all in this together. And I think there's four really um, beautiful grassroots, bottom-up indigenous movements that are asserting sovereignty and resilience. Um, one is the land rematriation movement that's happening um, locally in the Bay Area with the Segorate Land Trust, but it's happening nationally and internationally with voluntary reparations. Um, people who've inherited property and are like, how did I get this? How did my grandparents get this? How did I get this wealth? Wow, um, there was a lot of injustice, a lot of you know, violations of human rights that 
allowed me to amass this wealth. I'm going to return some of it. I'm going to share space. So there is a growing grassroots land rematriation movement, especially with indigenous peoples, people giving back ranches um, or selling it half price, you know, or opening up access for gathering and fishing again um, on their ancestral lands. That's fantastic. And related to seeds, um, we put a link in for the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance and their Indigenous Seed Keepers Network, led by the fantastic Rowan White, that is doing wonderful work with protecting the sanctity of native seeds and rematriating them, returning them to their motherland out of seed banks back to their original families and clans and um, tribal nations to grow out those seeds again, um, which is fantastic and so helpful for the health of everybody. Um, also the treaty, uh, the Buffalo Treaty, that is this incredible grassroots bottom up treaty that's happening between Blackfeet nations, other nations across the U.S.-Canadian border, but also conservation groups, land trusts, who are opening up their lands for the buffalo to return again. And this has been prophesized as well, that, you know, we will be decimated to the point of almost no return, but we will return, we'll be at a crossroads, and we will start to restore and revitalize and light the seventh fire in the seventh fire prophecy and light the eighth fire, which is one of renewal and restoration and alliance building. And we can look to our traditional ecological knowledge and the indigenous sciences have so much to offer, both in ethics and values and wisdom, but also in pragmatic science. Um, you know, indigenous peoples have been observing the changes in the atmosphere and in the fires and in the rivers for centuries and we have our sciences encoded in our stories that are available. They've just been marginalized, denigrated, considered savage or folklore, but they, they contain incredible observations about how to live more harmonious with our ecosystems. And we still are interested in sharing, not all of it, but Native people are very generous and are still interested in sharing um, and working together with all people to create a truly resilient future and avert some of this crisis. So there's much more to share, but that's in a nutshell. So thank you, Chimigwech. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, if we were in person as we had imagined this conversation being many months ago, uh, I would now be joining in everyone uh, in the room giving you three a huge round of, of, of applause and appreciation. So we'll just have to imagine you're hearing the sound of lots of appreciation for, uh, for all the wisdom you share with us today. And of course, all the, the wisdom you've bring to the work for so many years. As we close the formal part of the program, I really wanted to remind everybody, anybody who can stay on till the bottom of the hour, we are uh, shifting to conversation questions you can put through the chat and uh, function uh, here. Uh, but I want to thank all of you who were able to join us. I want to really thank Commonweal again for all the wonderful work that you do. And and Claire and Becky, uh, again, for your wisdom. I want to remind everyone that the produced audio and video recordings from this conversation will be available in about a week at the New School at Commonweal's website, which is tns.commonweal.org. It's also in the chat for you to see. And uh, we will link to many of the resources that have, that have been mentioned today uh, and include a link to the full Pacific Declaration there at the Commonweal's website. So uh, for those watching live, Kira has put that 
that link in uh, to the chat, but we'll also be putting it onto their website. And again, thank you all for joining us. And for those who can stay on, stay on. We're going to, to turn it now to your questions and uh, I will be moderating that part of uh, the conversation too. So thank you so much for joining us. All right, so again, uh, really, you guys, this was wonderful. And uh, I have been seeing this very active chat, which has been great. And maybe we'll start with, uh, let's see if I can get back, if I can scroll up, can one scroll up and chat? Uh, Kira, can you paste back to me that question we got from, uh, I don't know if I can scroll. The question of, Kira, can you pop in? One of the first. We have what we have a question from Tim Gibbons. Yeah, great. That one. Yes, please. Let me put that one in for and, you. Yeah. So I read this question, you guys, uh, earlier and didn't have a chance to ask it, but I will ask it now. And anybody, any of the three of you, jump in. Uh, so Tim asked, um, "Would we address corporate control of the seed supply?" Uh, and how that connects to rising input costs for farmers over production or for supply and low prices paid to farmers and how this relates to below cost of production feed for corporate factory farms. I want to remind those of you watching who might not realize this when we talk about what have been the crops that have been genetically engineered. Again, it's just a handful of commodity crops and uh, the corn and soybeans mostly going into for industrial purposes, either industrial factory farms or uh, into ultra processed foods or used um, in other industrial pro uh, processes, but a lot of it is going to livestock feed. So uh, who wants to take a stab at Tim's great question? Yeah, Claire, you want to go for it? Well, I just wanted to give a shout out to the Organic Seed Association and, and those people who are maintaining the germplasm in the organic business because, you know, and actually I forgot to say earlier, Anna, one of the great things your dad did was get some early seeds from Monsanto and test them. And as soon as they found out that your dad was revealing some of the problems with GMOs, they stopped sharing any of their seeds and they've been holding this, you know, very privately and, and the explosion. And I think Becky, don't you think it's more like 80% of the commercial seed now? ETC again has all that information, but it is, it is very, it's a, I mean, that's why I chose seeds as a way to help tell the story. It's, it's the heart of our relationship to the food system and the plant systems that keep all life on earth. So I won't go off on that, but, um, but this is an important question. Yeah. Yeah. And if I can just jump in, uh, yeah, I remember my dad work doing that work. And I think I have the book behind me somewhere. I think it was maybe 1999 that his book against the grain was published. And, uh, as maybe the three of you remember when he, uh, was, uh, had the manuscript finished, it was at his publishers and it was a book that looked at these early claims by industry about, you know, GMOs are going to increase yields. They're going to have all these great benefits. And he brought his science mind and questions and did analysis and found that actually it didn't, they, they weren't increasing the yields. And, uh, he told me the story of, uh, his publisher getting, a, I think it was like a 17 page, you know, letter, threatening letter from Monsanto lawyers that threatened his publisher that if they published it, Monsanto lawyers, their whole team of lawyers, you could imagine uh, how much money they have in their pockets would come after the publisher uh, if they, if they dared to publish my dad's book. Well, so it, 
Oh, yeah. sorry. Oh, I was going to say, so in the end, he, he did get it published from a small press that I think has since closed called Common Courage Press. But the difference between being published by this kind of cool lefty press and a mainstream publisher from Manhattan was that it had the kind of sheen of, well, this is, you know, must be kind of an activist, not a, uh, uh, you know, not a dispassionate science, you know, um, observation. But um, yeah, go ahead, Claire. Well, just briefly, one of the things he found early on, which was really remarkable, because I had him on my radio show a lot, and um, he found that, because I think a lot of people think of soy as a source of phytoestrogens, and he found that Roundup Ready soybeans, when they're sprayed with Roundup, had a significant drop in the phytoestrogens that are available. And it was one of the first studies that said, you know, these plants are going to make trade-offs. If you want them to be doused with herbicides, they're going to find something else to not do. And it's very important that we understand those internal relationships within the organisms that are being modified. But we have a lot of questions. Let's get to them, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a great point, Claire. So I want to jump into another question. I mean, these are all great and they're big questions, but uh, so uh, let's see where we can go with them. But one that I think was really great is uh, what does everyone think is the lowest hanging fruit in terms of policy shifts uh, that we need a new administration that we that that if we do get a new administration, you know, what could we be focused on? Um, feel free any of you to jump in uh, to that, and and if you want to raise up some of the the recent policy wins we've had at the state level, you know that could also be an opportunity to to get in there. But um, thank you, Stephanie, for that question. Who wants to take a stab at it? Well, I can. Sure. I mean, I I obviously will depend on the outcome of the election. Um, and even, even with, if we get a Biden administration, it's, you know, Center for Safety, we, we sue every administration. (laughs) So Obama administration, Bush, Trump, you know, unfortunately, um, even with the democratic administrations, we still see, um, a lot of resistance within the agencies for, for making a lot of change. Right now, the, um, USDA is going through a, a rehaul of their GMO regulations, and that's something that um, Center for Food Safety has been working a lot on, and that will be a big priority um, for us. And I think there will be opportunity for grassroots organizing around that uh, if we do have a new administration. And then, you know, we have uh, definitely seen more success at the local level. So as you know, Claire noted, you know, a number of counties uh, around the country in California, Hawaii, you know, Oregon have been able to pass laws, county laws, to restrict uh, the planting of GMOs. And I know that some groups are looking into potential local or state uh, initiatives that would limit, put limits on um, other kinds of genetic engineering that might not be included in those laws. So that's something that you know we're looking into doing a lot of legal research on. And if we are able to get find something to get people to rally around, then we'll definitely be putting out uh, sample model local state or federal legislation for activists to rally behind. So I'm hopeful that there'll be more opportunities to rally around that and possibly around, um, you know, genetically engineered microbes, um, which in labs. So we're looking into that. Great. Melissa, Claire, do you want to add any more thoughts on these policies? We'll take you. Sure, I'll just jump in real quickly. I mean, the future of food has we haven't even discussed the future of water, right? And so all of the water wars that are 
going to happen, beginning to happen, or already happening, especially with policies regarding distribution of water from um, tribal lands and tribal sources and rivers, like the battle we've had. Claire's been deeply involved with uh, the McLeod River and the Winnemum-Wintu and um, water rights in California. So that's a really important one to consider with policy changes and protecting water rights for tribal communities and local communities rather than having it being shipped all over and um, for agribusiness, basically. So I would add um, that we reverse the patenting of life, that we um, do, a, we really go back to the original idea of patents, which were the not apt, known life, you know, not, not natural objects, I think was the wording. So we really, that might be a legislative fix to stop that, but um, it's a, certainly a policy fix. And then also legislating so we can have open source seed production and open source genetic um, protections for public research and, and making sure that, um, um, that we can protect the genetic commons. I know the Zuni tribe has really been struggling a lot, a lot of the Southwest tribes on corn. And some of these patents, they patent one little part and then they claim to own the whole organism. It's, uh, that needs to be fixed. Yeah, I remember I mentioned in my introduction that when my dad died, he had this manuscript that was uh, in a very rough rough shape. And I am not a scientist. I was really not able to take it across the finish line. But as I was reading it, what really came up for me is really what he was saying. He didn't, he didn't use these words, but my interpretation of what he was arguing for is that just in the way that we have a clean water act and a clean air act, we need an act to protect genetic integrity you know, a, 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 an act that protects, I mean, clean, clean to me is, a, is another word for integrity, but, you know, the Clean Gene Act sounds too, too much like eugenics, but, but it was this idea that there is, there is uh, this important uh, regulatory role that we need to step in to say, look, if we're going to be introducing organisms, you know, Becky, you mentioned that if we introduce a genetically engineered salmon and it releases into the wild, what, is it, what does that do to the genetic integrity of all salmon, right? What uh, you talked about rice, Melissa, and this, the, the, sacred, uh, the sacredness of rice, you know, what does it look like when you introduce genetically engineered rice, you know, how can that affect genetic integrity? So, uh, uh, you know that that idea has stayed with me of that protecting of the genetic commons and what might what might be the policy ways in the legal ways in to to really create that protection that's that we don't have right now. Yeah, and just to add to that, as Claire said, genetic engineering has been regulated under very old laws, and so we're trying to fit and you know regulating a new technology oh. into. Even laws, mm -hmm. and so absolutely, and that's you know legally that's what we've been trying to do is challenging these you know, regulations as we can, but uh, it's, it's really difficult. And the fact that GMO salmon was approved by FDA as an animal drug, you know, that's one of the main arguments in our case. And Wait, it's, say that, say that again, Becky. So GMO salmon is regulated under, it was approved under FDA as an animal drug. That's how it's classified, an animal drug. Um, and that's one of the things that we're legally challenging. And hugely problematic. It doesn't fit that. But like you say, it really requires an overhaul of the whole regulatory system. And, and I do think that's something, you know, in an ideal world, we could 
really try to, to visualize like a lot of people have really wanted um, food taken out of FDA to have a separate food agency. Um, I think that's something that would be really interesting, which certainly be a big lift. But mm-hmm. One thing I've noticed in a lot of these legal decisions is these judges and lawyers, uh, not you, you got your, your, your group, Rebecca, but they're biologically illiterate. It's just, you know, I would like to even see in the schools you know, the stories, like Melissa says, and seeds, and remember the school garden movement, you know, and that we can go back and increasing ecological literacy and um, and, and broadening our approach to what it really means to protect, to have the inherent integrity of the natural world as part of what, we, what we're concerned with. Yeah, I want to bring in a question um, that came up earlier around uh, kind of the perspective of farmers uh, in this in this context, and do do you all think that farmers would be willing to stand up? This is the question to stand up against corporations if they felt that there were other options. Uh, how can we help the transition around land access and management so that these farmers don't need to rely on corporate seeds and chemicals and can't could stand up to corporations without the fear of losing their livelihood? Uh, I, I want to share this experience. I'll never forget of talking to this row crop farmer in. Missouri, uh, who had thousands of acres of GMO uh, corn uh, and soy, and yet was (laughs) this radical activist against industry consolidation and was part of campaigns against uh, Monsanto and the chemical companies producing these seeds. And I I said to him, wait, isn't this a contradiction? You know, you're growing these crops, but then you're, you're, uh, you know, you're sort of fighting the industry with your advocacy. You know, what's the... you know, explain that that contradiction. And he said, look, I, my heart and soul is I'm a farmer and I want to keep farming and I want to farm right here. And the only, uh, the, the only package of, of, of seeds, the only way that I can keep farming the way I know how is to buy from these companies. And he felt like he was really in a place where he didn't feel like he had choice. Uh, and, a part of his activism was to try to bring that choice back to his region and back to his farm. You know, whether he had more choice than he realized is, you know, is a question. But I just, that was so profound for me to, to hear this farmer talk about just how they felt that they, they uh, that he was really in a position where he didn't have that kind of choice. So um, I, I know all of you might, uh, would have a great perspective on this question. Um, whoever wants to jump in first. I'll, I'll yeah, jump I'll in start. first. I'm actually um, inheriting my father's farm in North Dakota, a small wheat farm. And I've been talking with him for years about organic polycultures, aerosols, you know, and he, he and others really, he was a retired, he didn't farm that actively very small, but everyone around them, they just think they have no choice. And so Mackenzie, your question is so right on. I think we need to create some alternatives. And, you know, I went to a farmer's market there and I found a little small scale organic farmer amidst the, the you know, acres of agribusiness. I'm like, look, see, he's doing it. It can be done. And we developed a relationship and started sharing seeds. And, but I think many of these folks like your, you know, your dad, your friend, just don't feel that they have a choice. So we need to create this alternative. I think that's such an exciting question to give them another option. Um, And hopefully there'd be a dominoes effect. I like Kenzie's question a lot too. It made me realize that we have a a mechanism for doing this, which is called the farm bill, 
which distributes all this money to GMOs and, and the animal industry rather than to organic farming. So just revising the way we do subsidies, because farmers do need the subsidies of all different kinds, and subsidizing the markets and organic seed and, and research, public interest research would be wonderful to have some funds for that and get, you know, grow the scientists that, and you know, and bring in the indigenous technological, you know, knowledge as well. So I think that if we could reformulate the farm bill, I know we all, everybody has been involved in this in so many different levels, but, you know, there are something called green subsidies in Europe where they actually pay farmers to protect birds' nests and, and make more biologically sane decisions. So, it can be done. And I think it's also the conservation resource programs that we already have, you know, if, you know, to, to, to answer the question of a new administration, any good administrations in terms of agriculture and food and farming, the way we would see it, but there are these fixes, which maybe if we can take the incremental point of view and start changing, making some of those changes, they would help. Yeah, I, I totally, completely agree with everything that, that Claire just said. And we, you know, in California, we do a little bit more of incentivizing um, certain agricultural, uh, positive agricultural practices. And that's one of the things uh, many of our groups here in California are working toward is incentivizing regenerative agriculture um, through money, through greenhouse gas reduction fund and, and general funds. Um, but like you said, Anna, another important thing is this land tenure uh, and land access issue. And so what kinds of laws, state or, and or federal laws, tax breaks can we set up for A, uh, farmers, older farmers that are going to um, uh, pass on their land to their family members? Are there ways they can get tax breaks if that land is converted to um, methods that don't use chemicals? Or, and also for new farmers, having getting access to land and having conditions tied in with, with that access um, to really promote these more, these healthier ways of farming. I, I do think that that's a huge issue and that a lot of groups are working on and, and that we need to really tie that in with it as well. Great, thanks. So I think we probably just have time for one more question uh, and I'll, I'll give the last uh, word question uh, to Dana Pearls uh, from Friends of the Earth who's been working on these issues also for a very long time. And she asked the three of you to, um, to reflect on this question. She wrote in, uh, GE mosquitoes uh, and GE salmon are both on the brink of being released onto the market and into the environment and both set dangerous precedents for more genetically engineered insects and animals uh, and how do we, ideas for how we might collectively fight these products, and especially how do we help that, that rights of nature framing become more of a mainstream narrative? So I know this is a big, <laughs> a big question, uh, and, uh, uh, but I, I thought this might be, um, you know, we'll, again, probably just have time for a few thoughts on this before we close out. And thanks, everybody, for putting your questions in, who I might not have, a, have had a chance to get to. We really appreciate it. Uh, so who wants to? dive in first on Dana's question. Um, I'll start and then I'll let Lisa wrap up. But yeah, so as I said, you know, we are litigating um, the GE salmon with FDA and that will be precedential. So if we, and we should know the outcome any day. We just had our oral argument a few weeks ago, final briefing in the case and, you know, fingers crossed, but that will, if we get a positive ruling that will impact 
the ability for companies to genetic engineer any animals. I mean, it depends what the ruling says. So we'll know a lot more after that, but that's why this case is so important. It's been, I think we've been working on the case for six years. It's a long-term case. These things take a really long time. Um, and, you know, as Dana knows, because we're working with Friends of the Earth, we're also doing um, that similar kind of activism around GE mosquitoes, where they're being introduced in Florida, which has been a real struggle. And Dana can certainly talk more about that. And looking at litigation opportunities. And that one in particular, I think the genetic engineering of insects is particularly challenging right now. But I think with animals, if we get a good ruling on the salmon, we'll have a good shot. If we win, it will likely be appealed, you know, and we'll just be there as we always do go through. We always have to go through the appeal process. And if we lose, we'll appeal. So, you know, that is that will set the standard. And I think that's why, you know, the, the company Aqua Bounty, they're, they're no bear. But, you know, I have no doubt that they are getting funding from bio, members of the biotech industry organization and others um, to fund that work because they know that the ruling of this, this case is going to make a huge difference for the future of GE animals. But like we talked about, the technology is flawed. There's, a, there's also another reason why they haven't been able to genetically, successfully genetically engineer uh, animals. So fingers crossed on that. Great. And I imagine, Becky, if people want to stay up on the latest, they can go to the Center for Food Safety website, sign up for your newsletter from that website, and you'll let people know. Uh, you'll People will be able to get the news that yeah, way. Yeah, we use action alerts all the time on all these issues. So thank you. Great. Okay. So Claire, Melissa, uh, last few thoughts on this question. Just just, just really quickly, because I'd love for Melissa to bring this home for us. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no, no pressure. Um, Dana and, and the Friends of the Earth do deserve a tremendous amount of credit for staying on this and doing a really good job of it. And what, what it reminds me of, I know that the communities in Florida that were actually consulted about the mosquito said they didn't want it. And what that brings up is something that's so fundamental to human rights, which is the right to refuse and informed consent. And that applies to all across the board for all of this. So, wow, I guess if I can land on one thing I would like to see, it would be that we have prior rights of refusal and community right to know and right to refuse laws in place. And that's going to have to happen from the ground up, I think. Thanks, Claire. Claire we're, you know, usual aligned. I mean, and I remember learning from you too. You're saying main strategies are, you know, legislation, litigation, education. And I work in the area of education, and we need to get the word out there and the great work you do, Anna, with real food media. I mean, using media. People, when you talk about it, do not want this, right? People do not want this. So we also need the frontline activists who are holding the line um, in zones of no GMO zones, no GE zones to really protect and make a stand against this. So uh, it's very frightening. And um, we also need to really honor our, our ethics and, you know, whatever spiritual traditions we have and practice humility in this as well. I think that's so important to get the word out um, for this kind of threat that is an ongoing um, issue we're all facing. So banding together like this, scientists, lawyers, ethicists, activists, um, scholars, uh, media people, um, together we can say no and practice, you know, free prior and informed consent, which is a major, major element of the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that everyone should familiarize yourselves with as well that can be used to help bolster this argument. Thank you.
Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, you guys. And thanks to everybody who stayed on. Uh, we really were so pleased you joined us. Thank you, Becky. Thanks, you, Claire. Thank you, Melissa. And of course, thank you, Commonweal, for hosting. Thank yep. you, Anna. <laughs> and again, just to remind you, we'll have this produced. Uh, the audio and video recordings will be up on our website uh, in about a week. And if you have the opportunity to donate um, to help us support programs like this in the future, I just put the link in the chat there. That would be wonderful. And if you have already donated, thank you so much. Um, Anna LaPay, Melissa Nelson, Claire Cummings, and Rebecca Spector, thank you for being with us on the new school at Commonwealth. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Anna LaPay, Claire Hope Cummings, Rebecca Spector, and Melissa Nelson. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.